This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Genomics England is working to embed genomics into healthcare, enable research, and improve the diagnosis and treatment of patients. In 2018, it completed enrollment of its first initiative, the 100,000 Genomes Project, and is working on a new initiative to explore the benefits and challenges of sequencing and analyzing the genomes of newborns. We spoke to Ellen Thomas, Clinical Director and Director of Quality for Genomics England, about the outcomes from the 100,000 Genomes Project, its newborn genomes program, and the potential for genome sequencing to alter the diagnostic odyssey for people with rare diseases. Ellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. We're going to talk about the work of Genomics England, the 100,000 Genomes Project, and the chance to change the diagnosis and understanding of rare diseases with genomic sequencing. Perhaps we can begin with the 100,000 Genomes Project. Can you explain what that was? Yes, of course. Um, The um, 100,000 Genomes Project was uh, launched 10 years ago now, and it was in the context of a time when there had been an exponential expansion in our capacity to sequence DNA. And what we'd seen with that expansion was that a lot of genomic diagnoses were being made for patients with rare diseases in the context of individual research projects. But there was a bit of a gap in terms of knowing how to use this technology in the context of a live healthcare setting. So the, um, what the UK government did was set up the 100,000 Genomes Project, which was a hybrid um, project, which was both um, to carry out research into rare diseases, but also to look at the implementation of how you use genomic technologies in the healthcare context. So the project was really strongly founded um, within the UK's National Health Service. Um, And the the goals were really to investigate the real world application of using whole genome sequencing um, in rare disease patients. And these were patients who had been through all of the standard uh, diagnostic testing that was available to them at that time and still didn't have a diagnosis. So the project did also have um, a second arm, which was looking at um, sequencing the genomes of tumours in cancer patients. But um, that's clearly not the um, area um, that Rarecast is interested in. So um, we'll be focusing really um, and discussing the rare disease part of the project today. In in November of 2021, the 100,000 Genomes Project issued a, a preliminary report in the New England Journal of Medicine on 
the role of genome sequencing in patients with undiagnosed rare disease. This was a pilot study that involved 4,660 patients. Can you explain what you did in that group and who was included in this study? Yes, absolutely. This was um, a report of um, a cohort of, of early participants right, who joined right at the first stage of the project. Now, all of these patients um, had samples taken for whole genome sequencing. They also had their healthcare data collected to contribute to the analysis. And uh, results were produced from um, the analysis of their genome data and the health data, which were then returned to um, genetics laboratories in the NHS for diagnostic reporting uh, back to those patients. So the cohort included um, over 2,000 rare disease patients and also a number of their family members. And this was a really powerful part of the, of the project. It really helps when you're doing a genomic analysis to be able to compare the genome of a person who has a rare disorder with the genomes of their close relatives, both those who share the same disorder and also those who don't share the same disorder. And this is called segregation analysis. So um, having those family members in the project helped us um, very strongly do with um, doing that segregation analysis. And, and what did you find? How, how many patient, patients were able to get a definitive diagnosis? Yeah, so there were, um, the, the, the cohort really went through two phases of analysis. So the, in the first phase um, of the analysis, there was a semi-automated pipeline, which took in the genomic data and the clinical data, and then compared those and returned some um, prioritized variants back to the NHS clinical scientists for review. And then there was a second round of analysis, which was um, much more manual um, and done um, by a team of researchers who really um, looked at the data from every possible angle to try to uh, find out the full breadth of the sorts of diagnoses that you could mine from a whole genome um, sequence, but which were difficult at that stage to do in an, in an automated kind of way. And some of those um, conditions were childhood onset conditions and some were adult onset conditions. There are over 150 different conditions um, in the in the program overall. Um, and overall, we um, found a diagnosis in 25% of the families uh, that took part. So one thing I find surprises people in the rare disease community is when they learn that whole genome sequencing often fails to deliver a definitive answer. Why is that? Yes, it's a very interesting question. And I think the first um, element to the answer to that question is really that it isn't always possible to tell in advance of, of a genomic investigation whether a patient does have a genomic condition or not. So there are some conditions which um, may be environmental in their origin or may be caused by a, a more um, complex or um, less strong type of genomic predisposition. And those sorts of conditions, there is no answer to find with a genome. So we, in every cohort of patients who does go through genome sequencing, there will be some patients where there isn't a diagnosis to find. So really, with all genomic projects, we're not aiming for 100% diagnostic yield because we know that, that there isn't that doesn't exist. There isn't 100% diagnostic yield. That said, though, there are a number of reasons why there may be a, a um, genome sequence which is done in somebody who does have a genomic diagnosis, but we don't immediately find that. And probably the biggest cause of that is due to 
um, genetic changes which we can't interpret. So all of us, um, I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with the fact that all of us are very different from each other in terms of our genomic sequence. We have about five million places across our genomes where we all differ from each other. And it's really very difficult to tell the difference between which of those five million variants are just part of what makes us all different from each other and which are the specific rare and important changes which are having a really big impact on our health. So understanding the, the genetic causes which, for example, don't affect the parts of the genome that code for proteins is really an area of research which is um, accelerating fast. But at the moment, there are many variants there which probably do cause people's diseases, but which we can't at the moment be clear about or clear enough about to be able to use that information um, in their healthcare. So there are also likely to be other sorts of variants which, which we could interpret, but that at the moment we can't detect technologically. So the whole genome sequence can detect a large range of different types of changes in the genome, but there are always still some tricky regions left uh, where, where those, um, those may, be, may be still difficult to mine using a genome. And then finally, there's also probably a group of very rare disease genes that we haven't discovered yet. And some of these may only affect a handful of families in the world. So until we can really, um, really share that data about um, different families with different conditions all over the world, some of these disease genes may be very difficult to pick out and spot. Within the realm of rare genetic diseases, is one approach better at detecting some types of diseases than another? Is it just a matter of how well-defined a specific condition is? Yes. So in general, the more specific and well-informed the question is that you are targeting at uh, genome data, the greater the chance you have of success at answering the question. So in my experience, if you carry out a very extensive genomic test without a, without any sense of what your diagnostic hypothesis might be, without a sense of where you're looking in the genome, then there is quite a lot lower a chance of, of success in terms of making a diagnosis compared with a situation where you're really very clear um, what you're looking for and where you might find it. And there are some conditions which have a very clear relationship between a very recognisable clinical presentation and variants in a specific set of genes. And you do get a higher diagnostic um, rate in those circumstances. So, for example, retinal disorders in this particular cohort had one of the highest diagnostic yields. And if you're an expert ophthalmologist, if you look at the back of somebody's eye and you see the pattern of changes in their retina, you can often be really sure that you're dealing with a, a genetic condition. You can get a readout just directly by looking at the back of the eye with that eye of experience. And there are some conditions where an ophthalmologist can even look at the back of the eye and tell you which gene it is that you should be looking at because the pattern is so specific. So in that, in those circumstances, you're able to really be sure that, that you are looking in the, in the right area for the right thing. There are other conditions which may be quite difficult to differentiate it from environmental causes of the same condition. So one example of that would be hearing loss, for example, where we know that congenital infection can cause hearing loss and so can a genetic condition. And so if you're testing a mixture of patients with different causes, then your, your yield is likely to be lower because there is less there to find. 
And there are other conditions where you get quite a big overlap with a more complex kind of genetic predisposition. So if you take some of the um, disorders of development, for example, they, there are some of those which are likely to, in some cases, be more due to multiple genetic effects, each of which are much smaller in their effect, a sort of bad hand of genetic variants inherited in a bad combination from both parents, rather than a single gene cause of the condition. And at the moment, our genomic testing just isn't, um, we can detect those variants, but we can't we can't clearly understand the combined impact of those um, those less um, less unusual and less powerful variants on any one individual. So in those circumstances, the output of a genome sequence is at the moment less helpful for, for individual um, patients. I guess there's also some other complexities in this in this sort of area. So there are some specific genes which are much more complex than others. So there are some genes which are more amenable to analysis than others. And some genes are much more variable than others. So those those genes are often quite difficult to interpret. So yes, you're definitely right that there is quite a, a wide range of, um, of, of, of outcomes when you target genome sequencing at different disorders and different conditions. And that's one of the things that we've been um, really um, looking at and understanding and uh, working out how we apply these technologies most effectively using the data from the 100,000 Genomes Project. These patients were recruited between 2014 and 2016. Has the technology and our ability to interpret results improved since then? Are, are there new approaches such as long read technology improving the diagnostic rate? Yes, so these patients were indeed recruited to the project um, early in the early phase. Um, the analysis of the data from these patients has really continued over a number of years with different approaches evolving over that time um, to add extra diagnoses. So one example would be the triplet repeat disorders. Um, your listeners may have heard of Huntington disease, which is a neurological condition, which is caused by a sort of stutter in the DNA sequence where the same little DNA sequence repeats um, over and over again. And if that expands and causes that stutter to get bigger, then over the generations that can turn into a, a gene which then causes Huntington disease. And when we first started the 100,000 Genomes Project, we would have said absolutely categorically that a whole genome sequence was not going to be able to detect conditions like Huntington disease, which were caused by these triplet repeat disorders. But then during the course of the um, early project, um, it became clear that groups around the world working with uh, short read genome sequencing had developed a way of specifically targeting questions about tri triplet repeat disorders to the genomes. So we were then able to go back to the genomes of the patients in the pilot and carry out that triplet repeat analysis. And that yielded quite a few extra diagnoses um, in, for, for patients in that, in that variant type. So over time, we have been using um, pipelines like the, the triplet repeat pipeline, uh, looking at, um, more, at more specific ways to detect much larger pieces of either extra or missing DNA known as copy number variants. And also using alternative prioritization approaches such as Examizer, really to go through this cohort of patients in, in a lot of detail and uh, pick out as, as many diagnoses as possible. Um, and in general, it's over time, the other, another big factor with this is that gene discovery um, continues um, apace with each year, many more disease genes being discovered. So that over time definitely um, increases diagnostic yield. 
We do also have um, increasingly better ways to follow up on genomic results and work out whether a particular variant is affecting a protein and its function and could therefore be causing disease. So that includes tests like RNA-based tests, a transcriptome sequence, which tells us whether the gene is, um, a change in the gene is leading to a change in the, um, in the RNA um, uh, sequence, which then goes on to determine the protein sequence. We also have the beginnings of artificial intelligence pro approaches to predict things like splicing variants, which is uh, which are variants which change the way in which the DNA is um, is then processed into a protein. Um, and as you say, there are new technologies such as long read technologies coming online. It's likely that long read technology is going to offer quite a lot of advantages um, in terms of structural, bigger variants, um, bigger changes in the genome, um, and also knowing which um, variants sit on which copy of our genome. We all have two copies of all of our genes, and knowing which which uh, variants sit on which copy of our of our of our DNA is is quite important in in reporting disease um, disease causing variants. So that's also also really helpful. At the moment, I think long read technology is in the phase where we can see those um, technological advances. But there's a difference between knowing that you can use a technology to detect variants and being able to scale that and implement it um, robustly and also cost effectively within routine healthcare. So at the moment, our diagnostic genome sequencing in the UK is still based on the short read um, technology. But there are a number of research projects going on which are investigating how we can um, convert the advantages of long read sequencing into um, a robust diagnostic um, offering. And I guess the final thing in, in this area would be that I would say that probably the biggest immediate win for diagnostic yield is bigger and more detailed variant databases, which contain information about patients, the, 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 health, the health situation of the patients who have those variants in, not the details of those patients, but just the link between the variant and the, the health condition. And also matching services, for example, which match genes um, across different data sets um, across the world. So obviously there are worries about data sharing um, and confidentiality in genomics, but there are increasingly ways in which um, you can link up different data sets in such a way that you can target specific questions at them without being able to see an inappropriate amount of the data set. And those sorts of matching services um, and um, linking services between different genomic data sets are probably the biggest route that we have at the moment in order to increase um, the diagnostic yield from genome sequencing. At the end of a sequencing test, there there is a patient and a family. You've been able to give diagnosis to a large number of undiagnosed patients. What's the impact of of that diagnosis? How does it change outcomes? How does it change their ability to just deal with their situation? Yeah, so I think the first um, element of that is um, is ending the diagnostic odyssey that many of these patients have, have been through. Um, it, we know that it is very important to patients and families to understand why a condition has happened and to be able to um, contact other families who are similarly affected um, and maybe to predict something of what will happen in the future. So that sense of understanding and control is the is, is probably the first um, the first element of receiving a diagnosis in this context. It can also be very useful for predicting for families um, what the chances of the same condition arising again in future in that family would be um, and informing people's reproductive choices. 
in some cases, making a diagnosis can mean that somebody is eligible for additional healthcare surveillance. So, for example, if you have a, a rare predisposition to a cancer syndrome, then if you can demonstrate that somebody does have that, then they're likely to be eligible for screening to try and pick up those cancers sooner. Um, and in, in some cases, we found that um, our patients, when they had a, a diagnosis, were became eligible for a clinical trial. And there was um, there were particularly uh, for retinal disorders. There are clinical trials now which um, require the, um, the the genetic explanation for the retinopathy for a patient to be able to enter those trials. And we had um, examples of that in the project. There were some key examples where there was a major change in management for a patient. So, for example, there was a girl who was diagnosed with a type of immunodeficiency, which is caused by a gene called CTPS1. And actually, um, that is a relatively high risk sort of immunodeficiency. And the recommended um, treatment for that is actually a stem cell transplant. So having that diagnosis really did change the way that 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 um, that little girl was then um, managed. So it was a relatively small minority at the time when we were returning these diagnoses for which there was a targeted uh, treatment. But the um, I think the sea change that we see happening now, and I know that you've um, on Rarecast talked to um, a number of guests about the sorts of nucleic acid therapies which are really coming in now, um, you know, really coming online now for patients who have a genetic diagnosis. That means that um, that there is that that, that 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 making these diagnoses in the future is likely to lead to a, a whole um, a whole new world of opportunity in terms of trials or n equals one um, therapies. So while while the, the sorts of um, the sorts of proportions of patients um, sort of five years or so ago who were able to come out of a diagnosis and go straight into a therapeutic option was relatively small, we can definitely see that world um, opening up um, really dramatically in the in the forthcoming years, which makes the diagnostic um, part of the of the of the endeavour so very much more important. Can anything be said from the study about how it? alters the diagnostic odyssey for patients is is whole genome sequencing something that will clearly get patients to answers faster Yes, absolutely. So the median duration of the diagnostic odyssey for the patients in this um, patient cohort was um, over six years. And that was the median um, diagnostic odyssey from the beginning of, of, of symptoms to the point where they, they received this, this diagnosis. And their median number of hospital visits was 68 over that time. So um, we know that because um, we patients um, consent to have their de-identified um, hospital um, data available alongside their genomes. So we're able to see the, you're able to see the uptick in um, activity in the run-up to a rare disease diagnosis through that data, which is a very powerful, um, a very powerful way of examining this, this difficult phenomenon, which is the rare disease uh, diagnostic odyssey. So the aim with whole genome sequencing really is to achieve a single um, test that can be the wet lab part, the sort of lab part of the test is, is just a one off. And then you can generate that data and target multiple different questions at it much more efficiently, either simultaneously or in, in short, um, a short space of time. So you can... Um, you can do some testing which is based on comparing the genomes of a patient and their parents. 
you can do um, you can target um, particular panels of known disease causing genes and look for both small genomic variants and also the large copy number and structural variants. At the same time, you can look at the triplet repeat disorders. And um, um, we're increasingly coming online now our specific modules for specific, really complex genes, such as the gene for um, SMA um, and also mitochondrial variants. So it really is a, a sort of one stop shop for the wet lab part of the of the testing. Whereas in the past, you would have to do those tests one by one. So many patients who came into this project had had, um, a, first of all, a, a, a less detailed chromosome test and then a more detailed chromosome test and then maybe tests of one or two individual genes and then maybe some smaller sort of gene panel tests, um, one after the other after the other as those things became available or became uh, relevant to them. And then they ended up with their diagnosis coming from a genome test. And what we're what we're now um, doing in the UK is starting with the genome test as the first diagnostic test, and then targeting all the questions at the same at the same data. And that is um, that you know is definitely um, a much more efficient uh, process and much more efficient way of, of getting to a um, you know getting getting to a diagnosis for patients. The the cost of the technology has fallen considerably, but many patients still, at least in the United States have to fight for access. Did your study make a case for the cost effectiveness of whole genome sequencing? Yes, so the we did definitely looked into that with um with with this with this study. So um we know that the cost of the diagnostic odyssey is huge and obviously the most important cost of the diagnostic odyssey is the impact on patients and the fact that they're coming back and back again and again to have more and more tests some of which may be quite invasive and that's the most important impact. But we also know that the cost to the healthcare system is very high. Um, and we found that there were over 180,000 episodes of hospital care that had gone into trying to diagnose and treat um, the patients in this in this cohort. Um, and it was estimated that the cost of that of, of those was over was nearly 90 million pounds, which is over 120 million dollars. And obviously, not all of those costs would have been the diagnostic odyssey, some of them with treatment and management of those patients, but a substantial proportion of those costs will have been diagnostic investigations. So if you can really cut to the chase with a genomic investigation, which, for example, means that you don't necessarily have to do a muscle biopsy or a kidney biopsy or a scan or a, um, you know other forms of imaging, then that then that you know that really does the cost of the test then does match pretty well um, with the with the with the costs that you're that you're saving, and. Because when you use a genome, you can use that wet lab test to t- target the different um, different types of questions. So, for example, in the past, we had to do um, the triplet repeat disorders test separately. And that meant that you had to pay for two tests. You had to pay for the, the, the gene sequencing for the genes of interest and then separately for the triplet repeat test. Whereas now um, you don't have to remember to do the triplet repeat test separately and you don't have to do the separate wet lab test for, for all the patients looking for the triplet repeat disorders. So there are definitely some savings there in terms of the of the, the lab costs as well. At the end of last year, Genomics England embarked on the newborn genomes program. What is that program and, and how does it work? If this is a uh, research pilot uh, project, which is really designed to answer questions about how we might use genome sequencing in the context of newborn screening. And the intention is that babies who are born in NHS hospitals will be offered this screening um, under consent, which will be provided by their parents. And the genome sequencing will be carried out and analysed as quickly as possible 
following the birth of the baby to try and identify babies who do have rare genetic disorders, which could be treated before any irreversible harm has occurred. There are still parents who seem nervous about anything from privacy to finding out information that's not actionable. What's your sense of parents' willingness to participate in this? Yes, absolutely. That's a really important question in this in this very sensitive area. Um, and the program has been designed um, incorporating a very extensive public dialogue, which has been going on for the last year or so now. And that's been held with multiple stakeholders, including patients who themselves have um, lived experience of rare diseases, uh, with parents and new parents, with um, different groups within society. And really the consensus that's emerging from that public dialogue is that if we maintain a really carefully targeted focus on disorders which affect babies and very small children, um, where there's also an effective treatment and in the context of really strong information governance and with informed consent, that people generally feel that that is the right way to be starting to ask these questions. And I think the key thing here is that there are a lot of questions which we don't know the answers to about how we might use genome sequencing in this context. And the logic of we can use genome sequencing to make diagnoses after a baby has presented with symptoms. Can we use that technology to look before the symptoms have started and where possible prevent those symptoms from causing irreversible damage is such a such a strong um, driver and so we really need to answer the questions about, about how, how we do this. And the questions include scientific questions, for example, um, how well can you detect disorders in advance of any symptoms presenting using genome sequencing? There are some really crucial patient experience questions. So how are families affected by the process of undergoing this kind of screening or by the process of receiving a positive result? And there are also health system questions. So what samples can you take from a, a small baby like that that you can collect quickly and practically and effectively um, in the pathway um, of, of, of a, a baby being born and, and then being discharged from hospital? And then also research questions. And can we, for example, use data from the project to run clinical trials um, following pre-symptomatic identification of, of rare disorders? So it is going to take time to generate all of this data. And now with the knowledge that the, the nucleic acid-based therapies are really just coming around the corner and will be more effective if they can be applied in advance and that there's a workup time as described so um, eloquently by Julia Vitarello in one of your um, recent um, um, Rarecast uh, Rarecasts, um, episodes, the, um, it's really important that we try to make the most of that, of that window. And I think the consensus that's developing is that the best way to answer these questions is really to address them in the context of a national programme, which has been set up on, based on public dialogue um, and under conditions of um, informed consent. And how long is that programme expected to run and, and what's the ultimate goal of it? Well, we're currently in the planning and consultation phase. We're due to uh, sequence the first babies during the course of 2023 and run the pilot over a period of three years. And our primary endpoint is really exploring the role of early diagnosis in conditions for which treatment is available. The data set that is generated will also allow extensive research into the diagnosis and treatment of rare disorders. 
And then it also allows the potential to research the role of genome data during the whole of life and the role of the genome as a resource to come back to during later life. But that will be very much in the research context um, and isn't um, in the um, information about disorders which could present later in life will not be returned uh, to the to the families that will be kept entirely in a, a de-identified context where it's um, answering questions in the context where that data won't be returned, um, which is in line with the um, the um, comfort zones that we discovered in our, our public dialogue. And we talked a little bit about the hesitancy some parents might have to participate, but what case would you make to them? Why, why should people participate? Well, I think um, this... Um, this research pilot is open to parents who want to participate. Anybody who doesn't want to participate will continue to have the completely standard com- commissioned newborn screening um, via the blood spot test um, by completely standard care. So it doesn't affect standard care. It's very much a research pilot. I think um, the aim of the programme is very much to um, explore how we can uh, treat um severe rare disorders at a pre-symptomatic stage. So um, I think that that goal is one which is um, potentially resonates with with parents. Um, and I think the um, getting this program launched now so that we are discovering how to um, how to generate the data, how to run the program, how to operate in a way which is um, acceptable and comfortable for parents, how to present results back to families, how to follow up those results um, before we get to the phase where the, the nucleic acid based therapies and other sorts of gene trials are really scaling up and wanting to um, recruit these patients um, for um, for that for for future research is, is is really important. So I think there's a there's a mixture of potential outcomes for individual families from the research, but also the potential to answer some very important questions for society about how we want to take this forward and how we want to use genomics in the context of um, healthy babies. Genomics England is building an important set of genomic data, uh, as with anything with rare disease. The more of it you can get, the, the, the better. Is Genomic is England doing anything to share that data with others? Yes. Yeah, so all of our data from the 100,000 Genomes Project and prospectively from other cohorts is made available to researchers via our National Genomic Research Library. And according to the terms of our consent, this is a reading library, not a lending library. So we have a system where we have an access review committee, which has members who are participants whose data is in the data set, who join in the process of approving researchers for access to the data. And then researchers can only access data within our protected research environment. And results can only be removed after they've been fully analysed without identifying patients. So um, I think a lot of um, a lot of big genomics projects around the world have similar sorts of undertakings in order to ensure that data is being used in a way which the people who've donated it are comfortable with. Um, and then the question then is how do we um, how do we federate that data across multiple different data sets in order to harness the power of those data sets without compromising um, people's privacy? And that is a very big area of international discussion and collaboration at the moment, which I think will will yield um, excellent dividends um, in the coming years. So what would you say the the long term potential to use whole genome sequencing for newborn screening is? What will it take to see this technology used that way and 
are there cost interpretation or other issues that remain a barrier? Yes, well, I think the cost of genome sequencing is likely to continue falling. Um, And as a larger proportion of rare disorders do become treatable, the health economic case for early detection um, and treatment will strengthen um, over the coming years. Interpretation, as with all genomic analyses, is, I agree, the biggest hurdle. And making improvements in our ability to interpret genomic variation will be really crucial to maximise the sensitivity of the test while minimising false alarm results. Um, I think there are um, a few other things that which, which need sorting out. So there are some practicalities which need to be um, investigated. So, um, for example, what's, what sample types you can take, how quickly you can turn around the sequencing and the analysis. But I think these are likely to be amenable to quite rapid improvement um, as we pilot and iterate the potential approaches to those practical um, uh, questions. And it's likely that other approaches are going to continue being needed alongside whole genome sequencing. So a very good example is hypothyroidism, which is obviously a treatable condition, which is currently screened for by the um, newborn um, blood spot screening. And there are some forms of hypothyroidism which are detectable by um, genome sequencing because they're genetic forms of hypothyroidism. There are some which are are not genetic, they're structural or congenital malformation type forms of hypothyroidism, which can only be detected by looking at thyroid hormone levels and can't be detected by looking at the genome. And there are others which can be detected by both. So you really need the genomic approach and the the protein-based approach in order to, um, in order to, to pick up all cases of hypothyroidism. And we certainly had patients in the 100,000 Genomes Project, for example, who had one of the forms of hypothyroidism, which could be detected by a genome, but couldn't be detected by current newborn screening. And those patients missed out on four or five years of treatment with thyroxine, which could have um, helped um, their development at an earlier stage and health at an earlier stage in, in their life. So and there's likely to need to be a, a, balanced, um, a balanced set of approaches we do need to make sure that genomics is really working for everyone. We know that for a mo- at the moment, we do have certain populations who are under-sequenced, and it is more difficult to interpret their genomic data. Um, so making sure that um, we reach better equality in the quality of interpretation is really important. And then I think finally, we need to think about the evidence thresholds which we need for adopting commissioned screening more broadly, regardless of the technology that we use, actually, there are some conditions which are so rare that they will never be sufficient evidence to meet the classical criteria that we use for deciding on whether to implement population screening. But if those are very, very rare conditions, but they are still very treatable conditions, and given that there are thousands of such conditions, a route does need to be found to make really pragmatic decisions about the scope of future newborn screening. And I think that sort of um, commissioning evidence conversation is a really important one to have alongside investigating the technology and also the societal impact and societal levels of comfort with the ways in which we use this sort of powerful data. Alan Thomas, Clinical Director and Director of Quality at Genomics England. Alan, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Danny. I've very much enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. 
You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. <laughs>